You're listening to a bonus episode featuring Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. This show is produced by me, Rocío Carvajal, and each episode I present a book that will change your life. The book I chose to feature on this podcast crossover is the story of an incredible moment in history when economic crisis, lockdowns and food scarcity were at the brink of bringing nations to their knees. And no, it's not about our current situation, but the parallels are uncanny. The setting is Britain at war. World War II looms over Europe, and Churchill is at the brink of becoming the world's most admired prime minister. And you might think that the war was fought and won in the fields and war rooms. Well, it was actually a combination of home front strategies and the feistiness of a man who made sure every Briton at home and abroad was fed and strong to be able to fight and survive. This book follows the events that led to the creation and operation of the Ministry of Food and the man who shaped it, Frederick James I, Earl of Woolton, commonly known as Lord Woolton, a man indeed of humble origins compared to the Westminster elite. He used his entrepreneurial genius and firm ideals of social justice to run a clockwork machine to ensure that Britain survived Hitler's attempt to starve it by ensuring supplies, rationing, and distributing them across the nation. This is a book about the work of one of Britain's most transcendent leaders, whose name has almost been forgotten in history. On the description of this show, you can find the link to know more about Hungry Books, and of course, to subscribe for free with just a simple click. I hope you enjoy this episode. Wars have historically shaped the way societies are organized. Yet, history is seldom kind to those who work backstage, and their names are hardly remembered. Their work is all too often forgotten. Napoleon Bonaparte famously said that an army marches on its stomach, and there is a lot of wisdom in that. However, this is also true for the towns and cities where war creeps to their doorsteps and the control of food supplies become the most important weapon. For thousands of years, mass starvation has been used as a political weapon. There are dozens of examples of how the use of violence to control the access of food supplies has been a well-known strategy of war, expansionism and imperialism. X or anarchy follows the events that led to the creation and operation of one of Britain's most transcendent social institutions, which was the Ministry of Food, and is a book about the man who shaped it, Frederick James Marquis, 1st Earl of Woolton, commonly known as Lord Woolton, and his name honestly should be as recognizable, well, as Winston Churchill, because without him, the outcome of World War II in Britain would have been very, very different. So, who was Lord Walton? Frederick James came from a fairly humble background. His family was originally from the north of England, 
had for generations made a living as small farmers and saddlers making saddles for horses. And he was actually the first of his family to go to college and there, from a very young age, engaged with forward-thinking peers and join a group called the Fabian Society, which promoted radical egalitarian ideas through a platform of democratic policies. Although later in life, Woolton's affiliations became a bit more moderate, this seminal period was fundamental in shaping his vision for a government whose work had to be solely devoted to serve the people and not the whims of the ruling class. That does sound like an ongoing problem. But anyways, it is really fascinating to see the transformation of this man's career you know, from being a saddler to becoming a fervent intellectual socialist, a highly successful businessman and an outstanding civil servant who reshaped Britain's domestic policy during the Second World War. So let's review some aspects about his life. After finishing a degree in sociology, Woolton's route to becoming a civil servant didn't become obvious, as his career consisted mainly in teaching, lecturing, doing social work alongside his best friend and wife, Maud Smith, and eventually became interested in retail and became manager-director of one of Britain's most successful chain of department stores. They were called Lewis, which has nothing to do with John Lewis, and it was way before that time. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was really big. So if you think your own meandering life and career won't land you a job where you can shine with all your eclectic skills, well, think again, because it was precisely Lord Woolton's unique character and background, and mostly the fact that he was a businessman and not a politician, that allowed him to create and run with clockwork machine precision a whole system to feed the nation at war. One thing I particularly enjoyed about this book is the way it frames World War II through the perspective of the home front. So this book is really not about romanticizing epic battles and military sacrifice. If you want that, by all means, watch Band of Brothers, because this book actually deals with the very basic and important issues of ensuring enough food supply, teach people how to ration and how to plan, and how the Ministry of Food transformed an otherwise heavily dependent nation into a self-sufficient one, at least for the duration of the war. So, let's see how things unraveled for Britain during World War II. First, let's not forget that Britain is a group of islands and the kingdom is formed by England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and they are surrounded by the Atlantic and the North Sea. And by the 1940s, it only produced less than a third of the food it consumed. Hitler knew this and he took actions to cripple Britain's maritime trade routes. But almost miraculously, Britain still managed to safely get tons of food each year during the war. And this is when the story turns into a political thriller. Because in one hand, the Luftwaffe carried on strategic bombings for most of the duration of the war. Heavy raids were constantly targeting cities like Birmingham, Coventry, Manchester and Liverpool. But obviously, London was the main target. Famously, in 1940 alone, London was bombed day and night for 57 days straight. 
Meanwhile, the British government found itself constantly paralyzed by the incompetence of the bureaucratic machine of the civil service and the somehow tyrannic and self-centered vision of Churchill. Right before the war started, and thanks to his shiny credentials as a retail genius, Woolton was recruited as technical advisor on textiles in the war office, which meant he was responsible for dressing every single army member. A few months later, in the spring of 1940, Lord Walton was appointed Minister of Food, and his main responsibilities were to ensure food supplies, manage and distribute them, and introduce a whole new wartime food literacy scheme. Now, William Sitwell, the author, does a remarkable job in the book by emphasizing the role of women, specifically housewives, commanders of the nation's food army, and they became crucial for the success of campaigns such as Dig for Victory that transformed thousands of gardens and parks across the nation into allotments. And only in four years, the nation managed to produce 66% of the total of food it consumed. So, Britain was growing enough cabbages, carrots and potatoes, but certainly this wasn't enough. One of the most revolutionary ideas that Woolton implemented to ensure the effective and democratic distribution of food was to build a national identity database to issue rationing books to feed roughly 42 million civilians. Now, you might be curious at this point about what exactly did rationing consist of. And the answer is quite simple. All the essential proteins that were particularly costly to produce and key to having a balanced diet were top on the rationing priorities to ensure that everyone had these essential items. So in 1941, supplies of butter and bacon were limited to four ounces per week per person. A few months later, the rationing of meat, tea, jam, marmalade, syrup and trickle was introduced. And by the end of the year, cheese and eggs were also rationed. And finally, in 1942, rice, dried fruit, condensed milk, breakfast cereals, tinned tomatoes, soap, sweets, chocolates, biscuits and oats were all added to the list. But vegetables of all kinds, and especially root vegetables, were never rationed. And here's the star, potato peat. Eat up. Ta-ta. Potato peat, potato peat. Now, let me give you some little known facts about Lord Walton. One of the reasons why there is plenty of contemporaneous information about Walton's opinions, ideas and strategies is because him and his wife were very disciplined diarists and also wrote numerous letters to each other every week, collecting their thoughts over the daily events and challenges that Walton faced during his tenure as a Minister of Food. 
Brilliant as Lord Woolton was at managing and designing production, distribution, and contingency plans, he was faced with the task of constantly having to issue radio and TV spots, create and distribute thousands of recipe books and leaflets to help housewives and cooks not only to be thrifty and creative, but also smart with their family's food rations and be mindful about the use of electricity and gas. And funny enough, Wilton himself had never cooked in his life. In fact, according to Maud, his wife, he was not only lost but useless in the kitchen. Nevertheless, he recruited physicians and cooks to permanently develop and test recipes that were going to be deployed to the entire nation that was faced with the scarcity of meat and abundance of vegetables. Lord Woolton wrote in one of his diaries, I sent for the vegetarians in order to ask them how they were living without meat, eggs or cheese. In fact, they were a most healthy looking crowd of people. But I found vegetarianism to be a flatulent failure for me. <laughs> I found a piece of audio in a historical archive and I'm going to play for you a little bit of the instructions on how to prepare tea. Success or failure depends entirely upon the attention you pay to the six golden rules. Six golden rules. All right, here goes. Number one, always use a good quality tea. Good. Number two, always use freshly drawn water. Right. Number three, remember to warm the teapot or urn. Everyone knows that one. And number four, measure the right quantity of tea for the amount of water in the pot. Very good. Number five, the water must reach boiling point, pot to the kettle, not kettle to the pot. And the last rule, number six, let the tea brew for five to ten minutes before serving. Excellent! What do you say, Mother? Yes, then tea will revive you. Now you have the secret, as you call it. So in future, don't spoil good tea by bad preparation. Let every cup you make be a cup that cheers. So among the many recipes that were particularly hailed by the ministry, one that was super famous called Walton Pie, that also gave them the perfect excuse to ramp up a great PR campaign. Now, in all fairness, the recipe was indeed quite simple and even innocent. And it included very humble ingredients like potatoes, parsnips, cauliflower, sweet carrots and turnips. But nevertheless, Wilton pie became a symbol of British resilience as well as a great memento of rationing Britain, much to the nerdy delight of historical cooks. Now, Wilton was very, very aware that people hated rationing, but had to brave it up anyways, because, I mean, there was not much else they could do about it. So they thought that if the public was either to laugh or cry about food rationing, it was better for them that they should laugh, even at the expense of the pompous names of simple dishes, like the famously dreadful national loaf, which was a normal-looking loaf of bread, loaded with extra vitamins and reconstituted ingredients, which made it pretty much inedible, and people promptly branded it as Hitler's secret weapon to kill Britain. Now, while this book is not quite intentionally a biography, it 
does present itself more like a rich snapshot of wartime Britain, and undoubtedly the attention is focused on the hugely inspiring statue of Wilton's commitment to stand for the plans and ideas that he laid out to carry on one of the most world's terrifying catering gigs in history. So collecting my thoughts about this book, I came up with a list of five reasons why I think everyone should read this book. And the reasons in no particular order are the following. I really think this is a book in which uh, food systems are laid bare for all to see. And we get to understand the critical importance of each and every part of the production chain. And it's really a reminder about how worryingly detached we are today from our food sources, not to mention how fragile and dependent we are on other nations' productions to sustain our modern way of life. Another thing this book gloriously achieves is touching on the dangerous vanity of privilege and self-serving bureaucracy. It contains a lot of political analysis and in-depth observations about the way in which Churchill's government operated. And it doesn't intentionally attack Churchill's legacy, but it paints a more wholesome context to understand him. And let's face it, it's never really a good idea to idealize or feed narcissistic political figures it always ends badly, and I think it really gives a different perspective of understanding wartime Britain. Mm. Another great lesson from this book is the Dig for Victory campaign. So this was very radical at the time, because obviously the option of having less food made urban farming way more attractive by turning parks and public spaces into allotments. And I really think it's something that resonates very strongly today, specifically with the subjects of food sovereignty and sustainability. But I really think there's a lot of value in these radical strategies. Now, while this book is not really a sociological work, a common thread throughout the book is talking about the resilience and the courage of millions of civilians who came out stronger and more organized from the war. And this somehow reminds me of a film in which some character says, humanity seems to need pain and horror so that we may rise above it. I mean, one does wonder. The book really does make you ponder about our historical responsibility to be active participants in ensuring an adequate and sustainable way to source and manage our resources. And the last reason why I think you should totally add this book to your Christmas shopping list is that it was a very pleasant surprise to discover Lord Walton and learn about his life. I particularly found his personal story and drive very, very inspiring. I think this book is really one of a kind because it puts together really important sources of information and the monumental role he had in shaping Britain's modern political and public life even if today's politicians forget about it. Well, whatever the future may hold for us, remember this. It's in your power to decide what sort of government we shall have in this country. That is your responsibility. 
So there you have it. Those are the reasons why I think you should buy this fantastic book. There aren't many spoilers because you already know how World War II ended. But chances are you had never heard before of Lord Walton and how he shaped social policy in Britain and ultimately how that shaped or inspired food policies in the Western world. So hopefully these will be really food for thought. Thank you for listening to this crossover and I hope you have enjoyed this little taste of what Hungry Books is all about and there are plenty more stories and books to enjoy over there. On the notes you can find the links to subscribe to Hungry Books and to get this very book, Eggs or Anarchy, the remarkable story of the man tasked with the impossible to feed a nation at war by William Sitwell. Pazichipotle will return with episode 69 as we slowly move to the big 70th episode, which sounds crazy and very exciting. Until then, take care, my friends. Stay hungry.